Chapter 6 By the time I had emerged from my new home at Osthorne Academy for Young Mages, the next morning, mist was draped across the school grounds like a headache clinging to the temples of a mildly concussed and half-hungover private investigator. I swallowed an extra-strength Tylenol with a last swill of cold coffee left over from the night before. I cursed last night Ivy for her woeful judgment regarding gin, but the curse didn't have much firepower behind it. I couldn't blame past Ivy, even if I wished she would have at least added water into the beverage rotation. The photos in the folder had merited a late-night trip to a neon-windowed liquor store in the nearest town. I didn't spend much time looking at dead bodies. It was usually petty, shameful shit that I saw. This case was a whole new level for me. The headache was probably worth the lack of complete nervous breakdown that should have come with looking through that folder, looking at those photos. They were high-quality matte prints, littered with scale rulers and yellow crime scene markers and obscure annotations. In each of them, Sylvia Kathleen lay on the dull gray carpet of the theoretical magic section of the library. She looked like an optical illusion, like a crappy trick at a third-rate magician's afternoon show at an off-strip casino in Vegas. She'd been bisected, split down the middle, a clean line from the top of her head through her nose down the cupid's bow of her top lip between her collarbones, all the way to her belly button and beyond. She'd fallen open like a split log, the two halves of her faced away from each other, staring at opposite bookshelves. Subsequent photos of the carpet showed only bloodstains. I'd started leaving the tonic out of my gin upon realizing that sometime between the photos of the corpse and the photos of the carpet, some poor bastard had to figure out a way to scoop Sylvia off the floor without leaving anything behind. I had wondered if there was a spell for that to keep everything inside her, given her state, or if maybe they'd slid a sheet of cardboard under her. And then I had put the folder away and taken my drink to bed with me. I couldn't deal with it anymore. I'd fallen asleep before I could finish the last few fingers of gin, which was probably the thing that saved me from a debilitating hangover. I dreamed of Tabitha in a hall of mirrors that night. When I woke up, I felt mushy staticky. I somehow pushed off to the left of center. A spell gone wrong. That's what the file said. I wanted to believe it. I wanted a reason to think that maybe this kind of thing just happened to people who got magic handed to them at birth or whenever these things get handed out. It would have felt a little like justice. I'm not proud of thinking that given that I was standing on a campus full of children who had two fistfuls of magic already and were reaching for more. But, and this isn't a story about things I'm proud of. The folder Torres had given me didn't just contain photos of horror beyond my wildest imagining. There was also a copy of a report with the logo of the National Mage Investigative Service stamped across the top. A spray of leaves, probably alder or something with a similar symbolic weight, over a barbed crescent moon that cupped a spread-fingered hand. I'd stared at the logo for a long time, studying the seven stars that were nested in the palm of the hand and wondering about the significance, wondering if this was the kind of thing you know when you spend your school years in a place like Osthorne. When I finally read the report, I found it even less satisfying than the emblem had been. 
It reported Sylvia's cause of death as a miscast version of a theoretical spell intended to facilitate instantaneous physical translation. I spent too long in a too hot shower that morning trying to cut through the fog in my brain and figure out what that meant. In the end, I decided that it probably meant she tried to teleport and failed. Or maybe it meant she was trying to transform herself and wound up split in half. I wasn't sure it really mattered either way. Sylvia Capley, it seemed, had tried to do something impossible because she thought that the rules of existence didn't apply to her. And she paid the price. It was, as the report wanted me to believe, that simple. I took the long way from staff housing to the school grounds, trying to get a little fresh air to circulate where the last of the gin fumes might be lingering. I told myself that it was also to give me a chance to scope out the grounds, to see if there was anyone skulking around where they shouldn't be, scrawling, I am the murderer, on a wall somewhere. I scratched absently at the tape that held fresh gauze on my still-stinging shoulder. It itched like hell, and the only thing keeping me from reopening the wound was the bandage covering it. The air was crisp and cloud-smelling, but rather than clearing my head, the breeze grated against my headache like sand between my teeth. I kept taking deep breaths and telling myself that this was fine. It was all fine. As I cut across the grass in a wide arc, a tone like a crystal glass being struck rang out through the morning, the sound bright in the thick silence. The immediate explosion of chaos and sound was only barely muffled by the walls of the school as students decamped from the first class of the day. Given the headache that lingered at the base of my skull, I was glad to be at a safe distance from the banging of lockers, the squeak of shoes on linoleum, the blinding flashes of bright adolescence. By the time I made it inside, the second clear tone had sounded, and most of the students were once again safely stowed in classrooms. I walked through the halls toward Taurus's office, feeling truant, waiting for someone to ask me where I was supposed to be. I thought I remembered how to get to the front office, but my head was throbbing. I took a wrong turn. Then I got flustered and took several more wrong turns, tangling myself up in my own leash. I finally rounded a corner, and things looked familiar again, and I thought maybe I was on the right track, but no, I wasn't at the front office. I'd found myself at the same bank of lockers I'd lingered over yesterday. And I wasn't alone. The boy I'd seen in Torres's office stood where I'd been the day before, his fingers tracing the M in Samantha from an inch above the metal, just far enough to avoid the shock. His hair was still unkempt in that hours in front of a mirror way. He was rangy, but not hunched. There was something in his posture that suggested purpose. He had the too-many-bones look that teenage boys get, but I could almost see the shadow of the man he would become in six or seven years. He looked perched on the cusp of something, or maybe he was on the edge of something, looking down. Here we go, I thought. Time to get to work. Do you know who did it? I asked. The kid, Dylan, I suddenly remembered. That's right, Dylan the Troubled. Jumped about a mile at the sound of my voice. He looked around to see if a teacher was going to make him go to class, if someone was going to yell at him. No, he answered. His face had gone still. The lie was as obvious as if it were a tarantula perched astride his wide, thin-lipped mouth. It struck me that he might not be sure if I was talking about the graffiti or the murder. I let his lie and his uncertainty linger for a moment before brushing it to the floor to scurry back into the shadows for another time. Okay. 
I clocked the twitch of surprise between his eyebrows. He couldn't tell if he was getting away with the lie or not. Good. Let him wonder. When someone thinks they're getting away with something, they're easier to manipulate. They stop looking closely at the things that might make it feel like their lie is unraveling, and they reveal things they didn't mean to. It's supposed to be some really advanced stuff, isn't it? This spell. I gestured to the graffiti, watching his face closely, but he didn't look proud so much as irritated. He nodded, twisted his mouth up. Yeah, I mean, I haven't even been able to figure it out, and I'm supposed to be. He stopped himself, looked down at his shoes. I'm supposed to be smart. Remind me of your name? Dylan DeCambray. He shoved his hands into his pockets, glowering. I beamed at him, bright enough that he surely knew I wasn't missing his glare, so much as willfully ignoring it. Great, Dylan. It's nice to meet you. I'm Ivy Gamble, P.I. His face rearranged itself when I dropped those two letters after my name. I had piqued his interest. I handed him a card. I'd love to talk to you sometime. Smart kid like you, I could use your help. A spark of pride, that was good. It meant he was at least a little bit gullible. Meantime, though, can you show me the way to the main office? I promise not to rat you out for skipping class. He nodded and fell into step beside me. So, are you? Am I what? Are you smart? He seemed to chew on this for a minute. I have to be. Says who? He gave me the kind of shrug that probably made his mother's ears shoot steam. It's complicated. Oh, I see. Too hard to explain. I said it mildly, trying not to be too obvious about pushing the big, flashing red insecurity button. It was like stealing candy from a big bowl of free candy surrounded by helpful multilingual signposts. It's in a prophecy, he huffed, leading me through a set of double doors. He said prophecy with a capital P. My family prophecy, it's a huge deal. It's been passed down for like centuries. It got smuggled out of Dalmatia, okay? It got saved from the prophecy purges in the 60s, too, back when people decided that prognostication was a false magic. So you know it's one of the really important prophecies. He took a deep breath. My generation is supposed to have a chosen one. Jesus, this kid speaks in a lot of proper nouns. And that's you? Well, nobody else is right for it. My half-sister Alexandria and I are the only ones who were born at the right time, and all she cares about is eyeliner and who's friends with who in popularity. This was a sore point, too, then. Or maybe he was just broody by default. So it's not like she could be the most powerful mage of our time. And what's the chosen one supposed to do? I asked. Dylan pulled up short. We'd reached the main office, and he'd stopped just out of sight of the windows that looked in on Mrs. Webb. When I glanced back at him, his eyes were intense. Sixteen-year-old me would probably have described them to her diary as burning. I'm supposed to change the world, he said. The door to the office opened behind me. I startled as a student walked out, a girl holding a pink hall pass and a small white pharmacy bag. I turned back to ask Dylan how he was supposed to change the world, but he was already gone. I bit back the old, familiar anger. Get it together, Ivy, I reminded myself. These people love to disappear. I sat in Torres' office, and we reviewed the facts in the file. 
Sylvia Capley, 35 years old, health and wellness teacher, split down the middle by what? When I mentioned the spell gone wrong theory, Torres closed her eyes, fighting some internal battle I couldn't identify. She took a slow anger management breath. I'm not qualified to comment on it, as the Miz reminded me several times. The, sorry, the Miz? Oh, yes, the National Mage Investigative Service. Nobody wants to say NMIS, so it usually gets shortened to MIS or... I nodded. Right, got it. So what's your unofficial opinion, then? She picked up a letter opener, twisted the point of it against the pad of one thumb. It wasn't sharp enough to draw blood, but I watched the place where her skin dented with a wary eye. My shoulder prickled. My very unofficial opinion, which I am not even giving, which we are not discussing, which you are not writing down or recording, Sylvia didn't screw around with theoretical magic. She was too smart and too wary. Wary? Torres leaned back in her chair, still pressing the top of the letter opener against her thumb. Sylvia was a cautious person, and reliable. Until the week of her death, she hadn't taken so much as a sick day. What happened the week of her death? Torres shrugged. She took a sick day, three, actually, right before she died. Normally, I would have been angry at a staff member taking days off during the first week of school, but there was a rash of food poisoning that week. Five teachers and a student got sick. And besides, even if Sylvia had been the only one out, I wouldn't have held it against her. Like I said, she was easily my most reliable staff member. She wasn't the type to play with fire. It just doesn't make sense. Fire meaning theoretical magic. Right. She pursed her lips. You've never taken a TM class, so you may not understand, but it's a very dangerous field, even at the entry levels. It's a lot like sticking your hand into a black box that may or may not have cobras in it. I blinked. That's the most coherent explanation of magic I've ever heard. Ah, oh, yes, well. The corners of her lips pinched in an ironic, almost smile. I imagine the only person who's ever explained magic to you is Tabitha. And she's, well, she lives in the black box. That's apt. I'll have to ask if she's a cobra or not. I couldn't help watching Torres's face for a sign of something, anything, that might allow me to avoid stepping into the black box alongside my maybe snake sister. Anything to keep from having to go in there alongside her. But Torres just laughed. I'll learn what I can from Tabitha, I continued. Although I don't know how germane theoretical magic is to my investigation, I really just need to rule it out. I'm honestly more interested in the people. Torres was kind enough not to comment on the obvious lie. Of course, I needed to learn about theoretical magic for this investigation, but I wasn't ready to face talking to Tabitha. Not yet. I flipped through the folder, passed the photographs, and landed on a list of names I'd compiled while reading the NMIS report. I want to interview the people who were spoken with last time, if you don't mind. Is that okay with you? It looks like there's a lot of staff on this list. Torres flinched. Of course, officially speaking, there was nothing suspicious about Sylvia's death, and Osthorne is and shall remain a safe haven for students and staff alike. Her words had the practiced rhythm of a letter sent to worried, angry, tuition-paying parents. But unofficially, do whatever you need to do. Talk to whomever you need to. 
solve this case. I'll do my best, I said, then looked at her narrowing eyes and revised. I'll solve the case, I will. I shouldn't have made a promise. That's a rookie mistake if ever there was one, but I couldn't help it. Marianne Torres needed to hear a promise. She nodded, then put on a pair of reading glasses and began tackling a pile of papers that was waiting on her desk blotter. I knew a dismissal when I saw one. I stood, let my hand rest on the doorknob. Then I turned back as though I were just remembering something, something small, unimportant. Oh, by the way, I almost forgot to ask, where's Sylvia's medical record? I asked. Torres looked over the top of her glasses at me. It's in the file, isn't it? No, I said. It's funny, the coroner's report is in there, and it refers to attached medical records. I pulled out the report and read her a short section. No anomalies found excepting sagittal bisection. Anomalies noted in medical records, Appendix B, not found. I held up the report for her to see. Two pages, no appendices. So where's Appendix B? I gave you everything I had, she said. Maybe they didn't send it over? I thumbed the staple on the report. There was a tiny shred of paper stuck to the back side of the staple, the top corner of a sheet of paper. Maybe, I said, watching Torres closely. Can you give the Miz a call and see if we can get a copy? She nodded absently as she looked back down at her paperwork. I watched her for a few more seconds, then accepted the dismissal. I closed the door behind me as softly as I could and went in search of a box with a cobra in it. Tabitha stood at the front of her classroom. Her stance was commanding. Behind her on a whiteboard, a series of diagrams showed, well, I have no idea what they showed. Arcs and angles and a few symbols that I thought I recognized from the five or six calculus classes I'd actually showed up for back when I was doing my best to flunk out of high school. I stood in the doorway, watching my sisters speak about a theorem I'd never heard of, and tried to recognize the girl I remembered in the woman she'd become. She looked exactly the same as I remembered, but I still wouldn't have recognized her if I'd passed her on the street. So much was different. The line of her back, the timbre of her voice. She commanded attention, respect, authority. You'd never believe that she'd cried for hours over a squashed frog in our parents' backyard. I couldn't connect the woman I was seeing with the girl I'd been so angry at for so long. The double vision that had been plaguing me since my arrival at Osthorne returned. I could see the Tabitha that was, and a Tabitha that might have been. Someone I could get drinks with after work. Someone I could make eye contact with at holidays. Someone I could trust. But that wasn't this Tabitha, not by a long shot. My head throbbed. A sound like a whip crack filled the room and electricity arced between her palms. All of the students in the classroom jumped. It took me a moment to be sure my heart hadn't stopped. Tabitha spread her hands wider. The electricity fizzed between them, too bright to watch. I couldn't see her face, but I was willing to bet that the sparks were lighting her from below, ghost stories, shadows, making her eyes look hollow. Then she closed her fists, and the light was gone. All right, everyone, you've got the concept. Now pair up and try it for yourselves. Take notes. I'll expect your lab report on Monday. 
Her voice rose as students started to rustle and fidget, eager to pair off with their preferred partners before they wound up stuck with that other kid. One person at a time. You try, and your partner will have a Suresh stick to disrupt the arc as needed. Then switch. I want to see everyone take a turn. She clapped her hands, and the kids flitted to each other. The room brimmed with the scraping of chairs and murmuring of, do you want to be my partner? And, okay, uh, who goes first? Tabitha turned to walk back to her desk. When she spotted me standing in the doorway, she smiled. It was a broad smile, one that would greet a stranger. I could see the exact instant when her mind processed me. The Ivy Gamble, her sister, standing here in this context where I had no business at all. Ivy? Oh my gosh, what on earth are you doing here? I returned her fixed smile. Surely Torres would have told her that I was going to be here. Surely. I'm on a case. I'm supposed to come talk to you about... I waved my hand around her classroom, gesturing toward the kids who were sending anemic sparks flying between their palms. This, I guess, theoretical magic. Tabitha cocked her head to one side. Her eyes were even brighter than I remembered, like shards of glass under a streetlight. What are you? You know what, this isn't a great time. She blinked at me hard. She couldn't reconcile seeing me here, now, in this place where I didn't belong. Maybe we should get drinks after work? This isn't a great time. I know a nice cocktail bar downtown. It's hipstery, but usually pretty mellow. We'll be able to hear each other. What? Drinks? My head throbbed again, reminding me that drinks were a bad idea I'd had the night before. I also didn't relish the idea of getting into a situation where I had to linger with Tabitha long enough to settle a bill. But I knew that if I didn't rule out her involvement that night, I'd just have to do it some other time. I didn't have a choice, not really. Okay, drinks, I said, edging toward the door. Come find me after the last period of the day? Sure, she said, watching me. Sure, that's fine. I normally wouldn't go out, but tomorrow's Saturday, so. She trailed off. Tabitha had never liked saying things that she thought were obvious. You'll be here all day, then. Yeah, I'm going to be doing some interviews. Well, not really interviews, just meeting some people. I was holding the door frame like it could keep me steady. And I'm going to be here all day. Every day, I guess. I'm kind of staying on campus in the empty apartment. She cocked her head. Empty apartment? Yeah, in staff housing? Torres is putting me in it so I can be here doing the investigation. There I went, over-explaining. Tabitha would have just said yes and left me to wonder whatever she didn't happen to disclose. An empty, oh. Oh, she said, some understanding dawning across her face. Okay, yeah, I said, I guess it's kind of spooky, right? But I don't get haunted vibes or anything. I tried to smile, but she didn't return it. Drinks tonight, she said, closing off so suddenly that I wondered if I'd imagined that weighty O. I'll text you the address of the place. You'll meet me there, yeah? I was about to suggest that we just open a bottle of wine at my place or hers, that we catch up, linger. I was caught in that double vision. It felt like there was a second Tabitha there, a possible Tabitha. And if I just reached for her, 
I could slip into the world where that sister lived. The world where we were friends, the world where I wasn't alone. But then there was a smell like burning hair, and one of the girls in the classroom shrieked. Tabitha whipped around just as the girl's partner whacked her hands with a rubber rod, disrupting the stream of electricity. My sister turned her back to me as though I had never been there at all. The emergency was over, but she was gone. Talking to the class about safety measures and how to properly protect each other. Midway through a sentence I didn't understand, she looked over her shoulder. Her eyes glanced off me like I was furniture. And I realized that to her, I wasn't there anymore. Plans for the evening had been made. I'd been contained. I eased out of the room as quietly as I'd left Torres's office, and when I shut the door, there weren't two Tabithas on the other side. There was only the real Tabitha, my real sister. And she was a stranger. Chapter 7 When the first student found me, I was camped out at one of the long study tables in the library. The table I'd picked was tucked to one side, but had a clear view of the window to the hallway. I had feathered my nest with file folders, nonspecific glossy photographs of blurred figures, sticky notes, a legal pad covered in vague notes with circles around randomly chosen words, arrows pointing to question marks, detective stuff. Between the diorama I'd set up and the students who had seen a stranger wandering their halls, I hoped to become hot gossip. I figured that those kids would see my setup and latch onto me like stray cats following a fishmonger. They wouldn't be able to resist the lure of a real live detective, a real mystery. They wouldn't be able to resist the story, because they were all trying desperately to find the thing, the elusive something that would make every adult's prediction come true. These are the best years of your life. I couldn't blame the kids for searching so hard. I remembered what it was like, walking through my high school and feeling like everyone else's lives had already started. There was the girl who was an amazing singer and played guitar outside at lunch, the academic kid who won an award at the national level for some kind of algae farm, the young artists who sat and moodily sketched their friends. I remembered looking at them and then looking at myself and wondering when the hell my thing would turn up. My friends and I... We'd all been looking for it. What would make us crystallize? Anything could be the thing that started it all, that started our stories. But the only stories we had to work with, the only stories these kids at Oslorn had to work with, were the ones we'd seen a million times already. It was why prom was so huge. It all fit into a story we knew by heart. Nervous proposal, careful planning, once-in-a-lifetime dress, incredible night. Everything changes. It was why prom was so disappointing, because afterward, everything would be the same. I wanted these kids to see me with the same hopeful glow I remember seeing my peers wearing in the weeks leading up to the prom that I had skipped. I wanted them wondering, what if this is it? What if this is the big change that shakes everything into place? What if this is the turning point? I wanted them to come to me and tell me what they knew, and I wanted them to feel like if they didn't tell me what they knew, they'd be missing out on their one chance to change their lives. So I presented them with a familiar narrative, something they'd seen on TV and in movies a million times. A private investigator is on the case, stirring things up. Anything could happen. Who's the killer? Who's a witness? Who's important? 
who has the biggest secrets? I gave them a story to slip into, to try out. Maybe this time things could be different. Maybe this time something would happen. It wasn't all for show. I truly was working at that gum-bottomed lab table. Strictly speaking, the official NMIS report was a write-off. A lot of we did the legwork and found nothing of consequence. Still, there was a dense thicket of starting points for me to work through. The report listed five staff members and four students as persons of interest. All of them had verified alibis, and all of them sounded perfectly innocent, which meant that the report was a sham. I was willing to wager that none of these people had actually been interviewed for more than a minute or two each. I'd seen it before with burglaries. That kind of thing happens when the investigating officers think they already know all the answers. The NMIS officers had clearly decided early on that the death was an accident, and had gone through the motions to ensure that their conclusion wouldn't be questioned. But even a sham report has clues in it, if you know where to look. If there aren't clues, there are at least a couple of footholds. I took notes on each person mentioned in the file, including pertinent details from the perfunctory interview transcriptions appended to the report. I was in the middle of reading about Rahul Chowdhury, Osthorne's staff member, teacher of physical magic, well-documented passion for theoretical magic, when I noticed a blonde shimmer in my peripheral vision. I was being watched. I didn't look up. I had a feeling I knew who this was going to turn out to be, and I knew I had to play my cards right if I wanted to really get the Osthorne gossip machine churning. I started flipping through photographs, tapping my lower lip with my pen... Shook my head, flipped to a fresh page on my legal pad. Every movement designed to signify that I was doing a whole lot of very important detective work. Clever, Ivy. You're that detective, right? It was the girl from the day before, the blonde with the study group. The in-charge girl who had managed to make Torres back off without so much as a curl of her high-gloss lip. She didn't wait for an answer before she seated herself in the chair across from me. She crossed her legs, tossed her hair back over one shoulder as she glanced around to make sure we were alone. I wasn't the only one performing. I gave her the long, suspicious look she wanted. Maybe I am. Who's asking? She looked over her shoulders again, arching her neck. I took mental notes, long blonde hair with a pyrite glint to it, cheekbones that Hollywood hopefuls would have paid for with six months' rent money. No makeup other than the lip gloss, or if there was, I was meant to think there was none. Her uniform didn't show the look-at-me hallmarks that I would have expected. No rolled-up skirt, no unbuttoned blouse. It struck me that this girl looked exactly like she was supposed to, which meant that she knew what people were looking for, what people would latch on to as weakness. She didn't want anyone thinking she needed their attention, their approval. Don't underestimate this one. I thought. When she looked back at me, I could see her taking her own mental notes, but her face was too still to reveal what she took my measure to be. I'm Alexandria de Cambrai. Shouldn't you be in fourth period, Alexandria? She smiled. I got a hall pass for a bathroom trip. I just thought I'd drop by on my way. Are you with the miss? A twinkle in her eyes. Aren't I clever? I put out my hand for her. I work for myself. Ivy Gamble, P.I. She didn't jump at the two letters the way I'd hoped. 
but I thought I saw a sheen of interest in her shark eyes. The Cambrai. You're related to Dylan, then? Wrong question. She rolled her eyes, sat back in her chair. He's my half-brother, or whatever. We have the same dad. Where did you go to school? A small talk opener from the kind of kid whose family throws galas. The what do you do of the wealthy academic elite? She was trying to take my measure. I raised an eyebrow and dodged the question. Half-brother? Your mom's must be different. He's a few muffins short of a basket, huh? I saw her register my evasion, but the bait was too juicy. She pounced, her eyes glinting. Oh, yeah, our moms are pretty much opposites. His mom totally ran off when he was like three or whatever, and I guess our dad had to raise him totally solo, which sounds crazy because our dad can be like really intense. Something shifted in her face, a flinch. She'd said too much. She veered back on course with all the skill of a speed skater recovering her lead. He's a total loser freak. I mean, I don't want to talk bad about him. Another elaborate look around to make sure we were alone. But he's like totally weird. I nodded, took a note, made sure to let her see me underlining Dylan's name. You've really got your finger on the pulse here, Alex. What can you tell me about Sylvia Capley? Something dark and animal slid across her face. It's Alexandria. What? What did I say? You called me Alex. That's not my name. My name is Alexandria. She bit off the five syllables of her name. I ducked my head, apologetic, my mistake, so sorry, won't happen again. Of course, sorry about that. And just like that, the noir dame was back, the girl who'd snuck across enemy lines to get me information, all cooperative, ready to trust me with what she knew. It's fine. Who were you asking about? I slid the staff photo of Sylvia across the table to her and threw some chum on the water. Sylvia? Ms. Capley, your health and wellness teacher? You know, the one who was mer- uh, who died? I saw her catch my slip of the tongue, saw her do the math. She'd come to find out why I was here and how I could become part of her story, and there it was. Murder. Oh my god, yeah, Miss Capley, it's so sad what happened to her. Gears turning. Something clicked into place in her mind. I mean, she was an amazing teacher. I considered her a mentor. Calculated tears. Just enough to make her eyes glitter, not enough to spill over and make her eyes puffy. You two were close? I had a feeling I'd be asking that question a lot. I mean, not like inappropriately close. I raised an eyebrow. Was she ever inappropriately close with anyone else? I watched as Alexandria waited for a half second. The rumors she could launch, the investigations she could kick off before discarding it. No, never. I mean, she was totally a lesbian. Not that it matters, she added quickly. I mean, like, I don't care or anything. Bria and Miranda are totally lesbians too, but it was whatever. She was dating someone anyway. That wasn't in the Ms. report, I said, scribbling faster than necessary on my notepad. The dating someone part, I mean, not the lesbian part. Although that hadn't been in the report either. Obviously. Get it together, Ivy. 
Do you know who she was dating? Footsteps in the hallway. Alexandria slid up out of the chair. Yeah, I do, but I have to go before someone sees me. She picked up one of my business cards from the table, suddenly overcome by the need to be a responsible member of the Osthorne student body. She whispered urgently. It was supposed to be some big secret who she was dating. I don't want to stay here. Can I come to your office? I whispered back, spooling out the intrigue. My office? No, no, you might be seen coming to Oakland. I'll tell you what, I'm staying on campus. You know where the good places are to meet without being noticed, right? We can have a cup of coffee, talk somewhere private. It didn't make a goddamn lick of sense. The chances of her being spotted on or near campus were about a billion times higher than the chances of anyone seeing her in Oakland. But she must have figured that the odds worked in her favor because she grabbed the chance to be in charge of our meeting. I'll text you, she said, tucking the card into her blazer pocket. Wait, I caught her attention, letting a thin thread of urgency into the conversation. Before you go, is there anything else I need to know about Miss Capley? She looked me up and down with a devastatingly quick flick of her eyes. In a millimeter of pupil movement, I'd been evaluated, quantified, categorized, and dismissed. She was weak. She whispered in a voice devoid of cruelty. She left without a glance back to make sure I was watching her go. I took some of the notes I hadn't wanted her to see me taking. Notes on her, what she really knew, what I thought she was lying about. I caught myself before I could finish writing shark eyes. I stayed in the library, let myself be seen during the passing period. Then, when the tardy bell for fifth period had rung and the hallways had emptied again, I tucked the notepad into my jacket, leaving the rest of my set decoration behind, and went to see if there was free coffee in the teacher's lounge. I found it without too much trouble. It was in the same hallway as the library, thank God. Tall tables lined with stools, a few couches in front of a decent-sized wall-mounted television, two big refrigerators, a wall of mailbox cubbies, a true teacher's lounge, not the lounge slash copy room slash mail room of my public high school. A tall guy sat on the couch. I could only see the back of his head, thick dark hair and headphones. I heard the shuffle of papers, the quick scratch of a pen, grating papers then. Coffee maker stood in the corner, one of those fancy space age deals with the pods. It looked straightforward from a distance, but after a few minutes pressing buttons and tugging on levers, I still hadn't figured out how to get the top to open so I could put the pot in. Ivy Gamble, ace detective. Just when I was about to give up and go back to the library in a dire state of caffeine deprivation, a throat cleared behind me. Can I give you a hand with that? It was the guy from the couch. I looked up at him, and up, and up. He just seemed to keep going. Oh, God, please, yes. I bit the inside of my cheek. I really need the caffeine. He nodded at my visitor's badge as he popped the machine open by pulling a lever. I could swear I'd pulled on nine or ten times already. You're the detective, right? Ivy? The staff got a note that you'd be around. You're here about what happened to Sylvia. That's me, I answered. How did you get that open? I was trying for ages and, oh, he said, it's easy. You just have to cast an unsealing charm while you pull on this lever. We have to keep it locked or the kids will sneak in here to steal coffee before first period. 
He popped my pod into the machine and pressed a button that made the whole thing purr like a saber-toothed tiger. Double vision. An Ivy who knew what he was talking about, and an Ivy who didn't. Another threshold, right then, and I decided which Ivy to be. I made a choice, one I made in case I needed more credibility, in case I needed him to trust me in ways that he might not otherwise. It was a professional decision. This was a job, and I had a deliverable to pursue, by any means necessary. Oh, right, I said, an unsealing charm, of course. I laughed, and my laugh wasn't awkward, and it wasn't hesitant. It was self-deprecating and charming, and easy. So easy. It's been a while since I've been in a school. It didn't even occur to me that I might need to use one of those on the coffee maker. He grinned at me. What a strange world us teachers inhabit, of course. And I smiled back, leaning against the counter as the coffee maker hummed. Are you a teacher here? I teach physical magic, he answered. Oh, you're... I reached into the depths of my memory, bumping against that lingering headache on the way. I could remember his alibi. He'd been in urgent care for dehydration, resulting from some kind of food poisoning. He'd been one of the five teachers absent from school grounds on the day of the murder, and he'd even provided his insurance paperwork as evidence. His interview answers in the transcript had been direct, if a touch impatient. His name finally floated to the surface of my memory after an embarrassingly long time. Rahul, right? Sh- oh, crap. I swear I knew your last name. <laughs> Chowdery, he'd laughed. But please, call me Rahul. I always feel weird when an adult calls me the same thing that my 14-year-old students do. Is this guy flirting with me? I wasn't used to being around friendly men. Most of the guys I met were jealous of their wives, or were angry that I had exposed their fraud, or were trying to dodge a bill. I didn't like this the way I felt slow and clumsy. I reminded myself what I was there to do. But if he was flirting with me, he would probably slip up and tell me things, right? It couldn't hurt to go with it. I added half a packet of fake sugar to my coffee and decided to press the advantage. Mind if I join you here for a few minutes? I need to get out of that library. It's like a peach pit in there. He gestured grandly to the couch. Of course, and I know what you mean about the library. I blinked at him. I hadn't even known what I meant. I shifted his stack of graded papers to the little coffee table in front of the couch. The top one was marked by a blue B plus with a smiley face next to it. Really? I asked, trying not to sound too incredulous. Yeah, he said as he folded his mile-long legs to sit next to me. Totally. Ever since Sylvia's body was found, it's kind of hard to get kids to go in there. Well, except Dylan. He rolled his eyes, but nobody wants to go in there for educational purposes. They think it's haunted. What with the books and all. You've heard the books, right? I suppressed a shudder. Yeah, I've heard the books. But about the students, I saw a group of girls in there just the other day. Rahul shook his head. Was it Alexandria de Cambrai and her group? Yeah, I said. Why? They were there on a bed. They took a video of themselves walking through the stacks and posted it online this morning. I crinkled my nose. A bed? That doesn't really seem like Alexandria style. No, 
This morning, the entire prom committee stepped down and was replaced by those four girls, he said. When Alexandria plays, she plays to win. Wow. You've got the inside scoop, huh? I only know about it because I'm the staff facilitator for prom this year. Prom was kind of Sylvia's thing. After she died, no one else wanted to take it on. But I thought the kids kind of needed it, you know? They need that normal thing. Yeah, yikes. We shared the awkward silence that comes from small talk on sad. It was a silence I experienced whenever a new person found out that my mother was dead. So, I said in a too bright voice, trying to rescue us both. Physical magic, huh? That's my jam, he said. What made you decide on that? I pretended that I wasn't pretending. I pretended that I knew what physical magic was, that I knew how it worked, that I had a reason to ask my question. And whoever I was pretending to be, Rahul liked her. His face lit up, his warm brown eyes crinkling. Well, it's just so awesome, right? I mean, for most kids, the first time they do magic, it's physical magic. Like, maybe they accidentally turned their hair blue, or they grew their poodle three sizes, so they're already pumped about it, and then I get to teach them that there's so much more. I nodded like I knew exactly what he was talking about. I remembered another one of Tabitha's first times doing accidental magic, which was nothing like what he was describing. She'd turned all the water in our community swimming pool into sparks. So much more indeed. It's such a trustworthy kind of magic too, you know? He leaned toward me, bright with enthusiasm. It's not like metaphysical, where you're turning something into something else. It's just making things a little different. Like, can I show you my favorite thing? I nodded without having a clue what he was gonna do. He reached forward and touched a scar on my arm, a half-inch long one that I'd had since an unfortunate tangle with my first training wheel free bike. Under his fingertip, it shivered silver like a thread of mercury. My breath caught. I'd never let Tabitha try to do anything like that to me. I'd screamed at her like a banshee the one time she came for my hair with a detangling spell. Wow, I breathed, then realized how wide-eyed that sounded. Wow, I forgot I even had that scar. It was a bad cover, but when I looked up, it didn't seem like he'd noticed. I couldn't tell if I liked what he'd done or not. My heart was pounding with some combination of excitement and disgust and shame and heat. He sat back with a smile, and my scar went back to its normal pale pink. See what I mean? It's not metaphysical. It's exactly what it is, but it's also more. I guess I just like things to be more of what they are, he said, rubbing the back of his neck and giving me a bashful half-smile. More or less. I got back to the library five minutes before the final bell. It was just enough time to gather my props, which were in abject disarray. Someone had been investigating me. I started sweeping my scattered business cards into a pile, ignoring my phone buzzing in my pocket. It would be Tabitha sending me the address of the bar I was supposed to meet her at. Part of me had wanted to invite her back to my bare little apartment in staff housing. Me and her and a bottle of wine. I imagined us with our feet tucked up on the couch, leaning toward each other, smiling, laughing about things we'd forgotten. But it was a best friend tableau I'd never actually experienced. 
Not with a real best friend, and certainly not with Tabitha. I hadn't been alone with my sisters since high school. I couldn't begin to imagine what it would be like to be friends with her. I tried to imagine it. Drinks after work, dinners on the weekends, visiting our mother's grave together. But we didn't have that. We had silent Christmases and smiles that were just for photographs. We had the crushing weight of things that had gone unsaid for so long that they'd calcified between us. Walls too high to ever turn into bridges. An actual friendship with her would be... The tracks evaporated from under my train of thought. I froze in the middle of stacking glossy photos. There was something tucked under the top page of my legal pad. I lifted the corner of the page. A piece of paper was hidden there, folded into an elaborate star. I looked around without picking it up. I couldn't see anyone else in the library, although I thought I heard a sharp increase in the whispering from the roped-off theoretical magic section. I suppressed a shiver and swept everything from the study table into my bag. I needed to get the hell out of that place. Once I'd made it to my car, I dug through the debris, letting the bogus photos crumple against each other. It was stuffy, hot, but I didn't want to turn on the air conditioning, not yet. It felt like the whispers from the library had woven through the pit of my stomach, and they wouldn't quiet until I'd unfolded that star, read the note I'd been left. Tracing my fingers along the seams at the bottom of my bag, I finally found it. It was made from lined paper, torn out of a notebook, the perforated edge carefully trimmed. Two sentences were written in a bubbly print and unsmudged pen, right in the heart of the star. She's not who you think she is. Watch out. As I read them, the words ran like watercolors, the dark blue ink growing thin and spreading to the edges of the page. The pigment sank into the paper and then faded, taking the light notebook paper lines with it. I stared at the wide stretch of white nothing on the page. I realized that I had no scale for how weird this actually was, in a world where scars can turn to silver and sparks can fly between the palms of a 14-year-old kid. I was in so far over my head that I didn't know which way was up anymore. Shit, I said, turning the car on without looking at the address Tabitha had sent. I didn't care if I drove 20 miles in the wrong direction. I needed to get off that campus, far from the library and the bloodstains and the graffiti that wouldn't scrape away. Shit. I pulled out of the Osthorne parking lot with my eyes on my rearview mirror, unable to shake the feeling that someone was standing behind one of those leaded glass windows, watching me go. Chapter 8 Tabitha and I finished our first two rounds with the efficiency of people who drink when they don't know what to say. The bar she'd chosen for us was dimly lit and still had a musty jukebox in one corner and a condom vending machine in the ladies' room. But the menu revealed that there was a budding mixologist behind the bar, and the drinks were strong, which was good enough for me. Tabitha was a half round ahead by the time I showed up. I was late, but at least I wasn't hearing phantom whispers anymore. She wasn't angry at me for my tardiness, but somewhere a score was being kept, and I certainly wasn't in the lead. Tabitha ordered spicy, smoky cocktails, habanero and mezcal. I favored lime and ginger and whatever clear liquor the bartender wanted to pour. 
We picked our way through the kind of conversation you're supposed to have with someone you haven't seen in a while and don't particularly understand. Lots of small talk and avoidance. The occasional reference to experiences we'd shared a long time ago, back when we still shared things. I kept wanting to explain that I was a different person than the Ivy she remembered, but then I'd catch myself thinking that she was the exact same Tabitha I remembered, and so I'd doubt myself. Maybe I hadn't changed. Maybe I wasn't different. Maybe I'd just like to tell myself that I'd come a long way, a convenient fiction to make it easier to keep going home to the same empty apartment every night. Finally, after we ordered a third round of drinks and a basket of popcorn to share, sea salt and pink peppercorn, $9 a basket, we started to really talk. She leaned across the table with a sparkle in her eyes, and she laughed at something I said. A good laugh. A real one. I leaned forward, too, trying not to let myself get too hungry, but caught in the pull of possibility. The thing about me is I let things go. I let people go. I don't know how to hang on to them. I try, but I hold too tight or not tight enough or something in between, and they go. They always go. But all it took was three drinks, and there was the sparkle in Tabitha's eyes, and we were leaning toward each other, and she was laughing, and maybe, 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 this could be something I could keep. We were sisters, after all. I thought of how it would feel to end our estrangement and patch things up, and my heart ached with a hope that I hadn't let myself feel for a long time. Maybe this could work. If I didn't manage to ruin it first. So, are you seeing anyone? I asked. She looked surprised. Well, I just remember Dad mentioned last Thanksgiving that you'd met some new girl, right? He seemed to think you were pretty excited about she cut me off. It didn't work out. She smiled like a door slamming and frost spread across the surface of her drink. That was a mistake. I shouldn't have reminded her of the way Dad gave us updates on each other. I shouldn't have reminded her that we traded off holidays so as not to have to sit across from each other. Damn it. Damn it. Damn it. Ivy, she said, stabbing her straw through the layer of ice in her glass with a savage crunch. I appreciate what you're doing, but come on. We don't have to try to make this into something it's not. Let's just talk about what we need to talk about. It's not like we're here to become best friends, right? Oh. My chair suddenly felt too small. Sure, of course. I'll just be right back, I said and walked to the restroom without waiting for her reply. I shut myself in a stall and rested my forehead against the scarred door clenched my fists, wished I was more drunk, wished I was less drunk. I dug my nails into my palms and stared at my shoes, sensible boots with a professional enough looking toe that I could pass for a grown-up in the company of people who wore blazers. And Tabitha noticed them. What did she think of them? What did she think of me after all these years? It's not like we're here to become best friends. I stood at the sink, running my hands under the water, until long after the watered-down liquid hand soap had rinsed away. It was the same kind that I kept in my office, just as ineffective. I didn't look at myself in the mirror. Fucking Tabitha. 
She still did that thing to her eyes, the thing that made them look bigger and more open, more alive. Not makeup, it's something else, something fucking magic. I didn't like looking at myself, seeing my eyes and knowing that she had them, the exact same ones, and had decided that they needed to be better. I pushed my shoulders back as I walked to the table and tried to look like I hadn't just been giving myself a pep talk in a bathroom that had phone numbers written on the walls. I don't know why I bothered. Tabitha wasn't paying attention. She was playing with the cocktail napkin that had come with my third drink, flipping it between her fingers while condensation from my glass pulled on the table. She flicked it with her index finger once every second or so. As I got closer, I could see what she was doing. Turning it into water, then tree bark, then clear plastic, then something that looked like bone. When I sat down, she flicked the napkin one more time, and it reappeared under my glass, a neat square of copper mesh. That'll leave green spots on the table, I pointed out. You're thinking of brass, she replied, sipping her drink. I looked back down, and my copper napkin was a shade browner than it had been before. When I looked up at Tabitha again, the light from a street lamp outside was falling across her hair at exactly the right angle to make it glimmer. I clenched my teeth together until I could hear them creaking. So, she stared at me over the top of her drink, her eyebrows arched. You want to know about theoretical magic, right? I stared at the metal mesh under my glass. No, I didn't want to know about magic. I wanted to get up and walk away and continue pretending I didn't know anything about it. I rolled the words over my tongue like a butterscotch candy. Never mind, I'm not taking the case. Goodbye. I pictured the relief that would settle over her face as she realized that she didn't actually have to try to teach me about magic, that she didn't actually have to talk to me at all. I pictured us finishing our drinks, paying the tab, and parting ways. I pictured returning the barely-touched retainer to Torres and going back to taking pictures of adulterers and insurance scammers. I pictured myself burrowing back down into my cozy nest of petty fraud and adultery, and it was so tempting. But then I watched the brass coaster under my glass as it turned green so fast that it couldn't have been just the water and the air doing it. A different picture clicked together in my mind. I envisioned the murder of Sylvia Capley spreading across Osthorne, oxidizing it, rotting it. I imagined my father at Christmas watching Tabitha turn pine boughs into ice sculptures, and I pictured a glimmer of doubt in his eyes. His magical daughter couldn't fix everything, after all. Two sides of a coin that I would only have one chance to flip. Learn about magic and solve this case, or run back to the comfort of my basement office. Talk to my sister, or give up the chance to solve a murder. Stay or go? I looked at Tabitha. Yes, I said. Tell me about magic. Four hours, several more cocktails, and three more baskets of overpriced popcorn later, we were evicted from the closing bar. We wheedled two compostable potato starch foam takeout cups of water from the bartender and walked out into the damp night air. They locked the door behind us, flicking the switch on the neon open sign and leaving the window dark and empty. I think I get it, 
I said, leaning against the wall outside the bar and watching a fine mist of almost rain drift through the light of the street lamps. I think I really get it. No, you don't, Tabitha said, sitting down at my feet. But that's okay, you're not supposed to. That's the whole point, it's theory. I slid down the wall until I was sitting next to her, both of us tucked under the awning outside the bar. The canvas didn't keep the drizzle from getting to us, but it wasn't coming down hard enough to be a bother, not really. I bumped Tabitha's foot with mine. We haven't talked this long since grade school. Her head lolled. Not since I turned your strawberry barrette green. You were so mad at me. Her chin tucked in as she frowned. You're still so mad at me. I didn't say anything. The sound of the bartender and the waiter flirting drifted out to us. What are you doing after this? What are you doing tomorrow morning? What about spending them both at my place? Tabitha gave a wet sniffle, and I realized she was pretty drunk. I realized I was pretty drunk. Impulsively, I grabbed her hand. I'm sorry, Tabby. I'm sorry I'm such a bitter asshole. She gave another loud sniff. When are you gonna forgive me for being magic? I squeezed her hand, leaning my head back and thumping it against the bricks. Probably never, I said. She laughed lightly, squeezed my hand back. When did you start hating me? I mean, it was the kind of question I would normally have dodged, but the mist was making the street lamps into fairy lights, and Tabitha was holding my hand. And there was something between us that I would have called magic if I didn't know about real magic. Six months after you left for Headley, I said. Really? Yeah. I tapped her thumb with mine. When you came home from spring break the first time. Was it the thing with my hair? So she remembered that too. We had a screaming fight about it. The way her hair was a different color. She'd offered to make mine better too, and I'd been furious that she wouldn't just change hers back. No, that wasn't it. I chewed on my lip. It was the mirror. The... Oh, I could hear it, the way she almost didn't remember. Yeah, you gave me that mirror before you left for school, and you told me it was a magic mirror. Like, I could leave you magical voicemails. She breathed. It was coming back to her. Oh my God, I did. I told you that, and then I didn't figure it out for months, I said. I kept sending you messages and waiting to get one back, and I never did. It took me until Christmas to figure it out. And then you came home, and I asked you about it, and you laughed at me. Jesus, Ivy. I was such a shit. She sounded sorry. I could have rubbed it in, could have told her more about how I spent hours talking into that mirror, never once questioning that I was telling my sister about my life about boys and girls and my first period and being scared of my math teacher and worried about her and missing her so, so much. I could have told her about how I couldn't look in mirrors anymore without remembering the sound of her laughter when I asked her about it. 
the way she'd talked to me with a scorn I'd never heard in her voice before she left for Headley. I can't believe you thought that was real, Ivy. We're not little kids anymore. Grow up. I could have ground it into her face, made her feel the kind of bewildered and hurt she'd made me feel. But then she was holding my hand. It's fine. That was a long time ago. I barely think about it anymore. And anyway, I was probably a shit to you, too. She laughed. Yeah, probably. I hardly remember. That was more honest communication than we'd had in decades. I couldn't take much more. I felt like her laugh was wrapped around my ribcage, crushing the air out of my lungs. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to enjoy her company. I fought down a swell of something like panic. Ivy, I should tell you something. She said it in an almost whisper, and I couldn't, I couldn't hear whatever it was, couldn't handle the possibility of intimacy. I should have, but I couldn't. It was too much, too fast. And if she kept going, I was going to have to admit how much I wanted it. How much I wanted her to be my sister again. How much it hurt that we had gone so long without talking. So instead, I pretended not to hear. So who's your favorite student? I blurted, too fast, too eager. She paused. When we were kids, she'd take that pause every now and then while we were playing, deciding whether she was going to let me make up a new rule or not. She almost never played along, but this time she did. Probably Miranda Yao. She said it, and I was almost convinced that I hadn't derailed her at all. I let myself believe it. That name's familiar. I thought back to the study group. It tried to picture the girls who had crowded around that phone in the library. She shrugged. Runs with Alexandria de Cambrai. You mentioned that you'd seen her, and seeing her without her posse is pretty rare. Tabitha leaned her head up my shoulder. She's sporty, all-American type, she murmured, and I remembered the Chinese girl in the baggy basketball shorts with her square jaws set in a scowl. But she's stealth brilliant. Gives Bria St. Morney a run for her money. Stealth brilliant? Yeah, she said. She's smart, but she keeps it on the down low. She had pitched her voice deep when she said down low and dissolved into a fit of giggles. They were contagious. I started giggling too, and it was strange hearing our laughter together. We had the same laugh. After a few minutes, we caught our breath. Both of us went, whoo, at the same time, which got us laughing again, and I asked why Miranda would keep her intelligence a secret. Ah, well, Bria was there first, she said. Bria, what? I wondered if maybe she was more drunk than I thought. Bria was there first. She repeated. She was friends with Alexandria first, and she's the smart one. When she brought Miranda into the group, something had to give. She missed her straw a couple of times before successfully taking a long drink of water. I think I'm missing something, I said. Tabitha set down her cup and scooted away from me by a few inches. See, check it out, she said, and I turned to find her staring at me, her eyes flashing under the streetlight. I'd forgotten how intense she could get. Alexandria, she curates people. She puts together her group of friends, but she hiccuped, took another sip of water. But they're only allowed to have one thing. I laughed. 
What does that mean, one thing? Tabitha nodded. Yeah, one thing each. See, right now, there's three of them. She counted them off on her fingers. Bria, she's super smart. Miranda is the sporty one. And then there's Courtney. She cleared her throat. She's artsy. So what's Alexandria? Powerful. In charge? She's the boss. Wait, now this doesn't add up. Aren't two of them gay? But that's allowed. There's allowed to be two lesbians in the posse? They don't have to be different? She shook her head. That's not really how it works. Being gay isn't their thing. It's just who they are. Although it probably doesn't hurt that only Bria is gay. Miranda is, um, she waved her hands. What do you call it? All of it? Pansexual? I stared at her. How on earth do you know that? She shrugged. They're out. Miranda's pretty vocal about it. Briella, so they've been together since sophomore year. I think they're going to the same college, even. They're really good together. Huh. We shared a quiet minute, thinking about how things had changed and hadn't changed since we were kids. Yeah, she said after a long drink of water. They're braver than I was at that age. I couldn't have committed to a girl that way back then. I didn't mention that as far as I knew, she'd still never really committed more than a few months at a time to any one girl. So, wait, I said. What happens if someone tries to be two things, or tries to be something that's taken? Tabitha smiled and rueful. Ask Samantha Crabtree. One day, she was in the arty friend spot. Then she went out for track. Tabitha slid a finger across her throat. Her fingernail left the ghost of a white line behind it. Next thing you know, she's in the headmaster's office. Rumors of an inappropriate relationship with a teacher. Yeah, what? I grimaced at her, but she waved me off, leaning her head back against the wall again and peering out of one half-open eye. Nah, there was nothing to the rumors. I mean, none of us would really put it past off the English teacher. She held a fist on top of her head. Man bun, MFA, novel that's dead in the water. He's kind of icky. I snorted, raised an eyebrow. Icky? She scowled. I get a weird vibe off him. Sylvia hated him. Said he made a pass at her in the teacher's lounge. Apparently, he told her that she was an eight, but that if she wore makeup, she could be a nine. Oh, God, he sounds gross, I said. Yeah, but we investigated pretty thoroughly, and there wasn't anything gross going on with Tov and Samantha. She closed the half-masked eye, and I realized it was easier to look at her when her eyes were closed. Tiny beads of mist clung to her eyelashes, to the tiny hairs of her eyebrows. The rumors were enough, though. Samantha was pretty emotionally wrecked for all of last year. She almost didn't come back this semester. Her parents said she's not all that stable these days. Sylvia kept an eye out for her, though. I think she'll be okay, she added. But not until after she graduates, I think. That old deal really traumatized her. She poked me hard with an index finger. And don't you think for a minute we don't know where the rumors started? She went quiet. I thought she dozed off. I drank my water and thought about Alexandria. They're graffiti, I said. Yep, she said, not opening her eyes. I can't prove it, and she won't admit it, but that's got Alexandria written all over it. 
And nobody can figure out what spell she used? Nobody, she said, her voice trailing into the soft murmur that precedes sleep. I looked into some theoretical possibilities, but it's beyond what I can even really grasp. So, see what I mean about her? I nodded. Powerful. I nudged Tabitha's foot with mine again. Hey, kiddo. Time to get you home, huh? She grabbed my hand as her eyes flew open. Her fingers were cold and damp. Let's just stay here for a minute, Ivy. Just a couple minutes. I don't want to go back. She was slurring, half drunk and half sleepy. My sister holding my hand. I didn't want to tell her no. I tried to find the anger I'd felt just a couple of hours before, the bitterness, but her hand was in mine and her head was on my shoulder, and I couldn't break the spell just yet. Okay. We sat silently for a few minutes. My mind was ticking over everything she'd told me. Maybe there was an easy solution to this. Maybe I could walk away from Osthorn with a few days' worth of expenses, the balance of the retainer and the memory of my sister's hand and mine. And then I'd have done it. I'd have solved a murder. Can it be this easy? Tabitha, I whispered, almost hoping she wouldn't hear me, but of course she did. Yeah. I hate to even ask this, but you know I have to. Where were you that night? She stiffened beside me. That hesitation, am I going to play this game? Then a shrug. Homesick. Food poisoning. Lots of us got it. I tried for a self-effacing laugh. It came out sounding canned. Great, I guess I can cross you off the list then, huh? She did a better laugh than I had as she stood, brushing sidewalk grime off her pants. She suddenly seemed very sober. Yep, need some proof or am I free to go? Wait. I said, my voice breaking in the middle of the word. Wait, no, I believe you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make this about work. It's fine, she said. It was always about work, Ivy. She looked down at me with weary eyes, and the puddle of light from the street lamp above her shivered as she gestured at me with two crooked fingers. The next thing I knew, I was standing on the lawn at Osthorn, dew soaking the cuffs of my pants. I knew, the way you know when you're going to throw up, that I'd gotten into a cab and taken it home. But the last thing I could really remember between standing outside the bar and standing on the grass was the look Tabitha had given me. Disappointed and satisfied, both at once, like she'd seen it coming. I walked into the apartment and looked around. It was barren in there, it was sterile. I filled a glass of water, then went down the hall into the bedroom. I stared at that huge bed and felt like I was going to scream. It was too big, too empty. It belonged to a dead woman. I grabbed the slippery duvet with both hands and pulled hard. The mattress shifted as the tucked-in blanket popped out from under the edges. I left it off kilter, wrapping the duvet around my shoulders before stumbling back into the living room. I fell onto the couch letting the fabric of the cushion imprint a weave onto my cheek. As I fell asleep, 
I heard Tabitha's voice over and over again. It was always about work, Ivy. It was always about work. Chapter 9 Monday morning came on like a head cold. I stumbled into the bathroom of the staff apartment, dragging the full weight of the week to come. I avoided looking into the bedroom, where the bare mattress stared back out like an accusation. I'd slept on the couch all weekend, shoving the duvet to one side during the days so I could sit up and review reports and reply to subcontractor emails and make a dent in the gin bottle. I was making progress. It was fine. I stood in front of the bathroom mirror and peeled back my shirt collar to look at the wound on my shoulder, which was not fine. I'd left the gauze off all weekend, vaguely remembering something my mother had said about how it was important to let it breathe. The cut itself was a livid white smile inside a wide ellipse of red. The skin around it was swollen, tender. I caught my own eye in the mirror as I prodded it, and I realized that the injury was the best-looking part of me. The bags under my eyes were definitely well past the carry-on limit, and it was painfully obvious that I hadn't actually showered or brushed my hair over the weekend. I ran my fingers through my tangles as though that would make a difference. I looked like something that had been pulled out of a shower drain, but really, I was fine. I'd just had an intense weekend. I'd gotten wrapped up in reading background checks on all the staff. They were super clean, although some of them had heavy redactions that I would have wagered were redacted because they were magic. I got wrapped up in those reports. I got wrapped up in all of them. It wasn't that I had lingered over Tabitha's. I hadn't. There was nothing there that I didn't already know. Background reports don't go all that deep. They don't explore, why are you the way you are, or what would it take for me to understand you? Besides, there wasn't time to linger. If there was no time to shower, there certainly wasn't time to dwell on things that couldn't change. I turned away from the mirror and started the process of making myself into a human being, someone who could walk into a meeting with Marion Torres without embarrassing herself. I'd shopped on Saturday morning, and the clothes and makeup I'd bought were all still packaged and tagged. As I tossed labels and stickers into the tiny bathroom trash can, I reflected that I could have just driven back up to Oakland. I could have gone to my empty apartment there and grabbed the things I needed to live here in this other empty apartment. But I had needed some new things anyway. I only bought the slightly nicer brands because I was flush with cash, not because I was trying to impress anyone at Osthorne. If the things I was wearing happened to look like the clothes the faculty at the school wore, well, they looked good, didn't they? There was nothing wrong with drawing style inspiration from people who look good in what they're wearing. There was nothing wrong with wanting to look as casually professional and put together as they did. I kept telling myself that as I showered and got dressed and tried to make myself look like someone who could walk between worlds. It was an outfit, not a costume. This could be the real me. On my way across the lawn to the school, I rubbed absently at my shoulder. It didn't hurt, per se, but it felt taut and soft at the same time, like overripe fruit. I gave it a poke and bit back a swear as a flash of blue pain bit through my vision. Okay, so maybe it did hurt, per se, very fucking per se. I was still massaging it with the heel of my hand when I got to the main office. I ran into a student on their way out, another girl holding a pink hall pass and a white pharmacy bag. I turned to look after her, pausing with my hand on the doorframe. 
my mouth half open to ask a question I hadn't finished forming yet. The question vanished entirely at the sound of a throat clearing. Can I help you? I turned to see Mrs. Webb, watching me with a flinty glare. I could deal with her. I was used to flinty glares. People don't like a P.I. nosing around. They think we'll create drama by turning over stones and revealing what's living in the soft, damp, dark underneath. They don't realize that the things live in the soft, damp, dark, whether or not we expose them to the sunlight. Did you have an appointment with Ms. Torres? I don't see you on her schedule. She rasped, not bothering to open the thick engagement calendar that sat on her desk. Actually, I said, clearing my throat, I'm here to talk to you, Mrs. Webb. I'd like to get your perspective on what happened on the day of the murder, when you found the uh, body. My eye can handle this petered out rapidly as Webb watched me, unblinking. I gave a full testimony to the NMIS under oath, she said. Yes, but I was just uh, hoping to, I have no interest in discussing it further, she said. You can read the death position transcripts in the file I composed for Ms. Torres to give you. It is a very thorough file, Ms. Campbell. Mrs. Webb and I regarded each other. The way she was staring at me reminded me of the way she'd been pinching herself when I saw her last. I tried hard not to let my gaze fall to her arm, where there were surely bruises hidden under the cardigan. I knew I had to push for answers. What did you see? What did it do to you? After a moment, she clicked her tongue. All right, then. Let's see it. I blinked at her, feeling like a cow faced with a differential equation. What? Take that ridiculous jacket off and let's see your shoulder, she rasped, bracing her arms on her desk and pushing herself out of her chair. My indignation was slow to set in. Ridiculous. This is a nice jacket. I got it from, hey, what are you doing? With quick fingers, she'd somehow gotten my jacket halfway off before I'd even realized what she was doing. Fucking mages. Mrs. Webb pressed on the red, swollen skin of my shoulder with her dry fingertips. They were so cool, so gentle. Then she pressed harder, and my shoulder lit up with white-hot pain. Then, ow, shit, no, hey, stop. Then everything went very fuzzy around the edges, and my shoulder exploded. <laughs>